Welcome to Businesses Doing Good, uh, an initiative of Good Cities. This is a program that lifts up the stories of those companies going beyond sustainability by building business models that do good in communities. Today our topic is Caribou's Coffee, Caribou Coffee's commitment to using 100% Rainforest Alliance certified coffee. Caribou Coffee is a Minnesota-based international brand started by John and Kim Puckett and currently owned by Luxembourg-based JAB Holdings. We have two guests for today's interview today. The first is the Senior Director of Coffee Sourcing and Operations for Caribou Coffee, who began his work with Caribou in August of 1994 as a store manager, shortly after attaining his BA in History and English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. During his 23 years with Caribou, he worked in a variety of positions, gaining experience and leadership capabilities to attain his current leadership role. He has an MBA from Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Please welcome Brett Struy. In addition, we've got a man that I've known since we were classmates in the class of 73 at Bay High in Bay Village, Ohio. And since 1999, he served as the Vice President of Global Supply Chain for Caribou Coffee. Paul is a graduate of Bowling Green State University. He and his wife, Abby, are empty nesters living in Waconia, Minnesota. He's the only person I know whose LinkedIn photo is a bobblehead doll of himself. Please welcome Paul Turek. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Everyone. Glad thank you. Welcome. Hey, tell us yeah. a little bit about the history and growth of Caribou Coffee. Okay, and Brett and I will just kind of, again, for, for the folks, uh, we're, we're just going to kind of uh, set this up as free form and, you know, tag off one another. And, and I, you know, we'll certainly assure that all the gaps are, are filled here. But Caribou started, as, uh, uh, as Glenn alluded to, in, in the early 90s by a, a husband and wife team. Um, they were uh, uh, graduates of, of Dartmouth. They wanted to start a business together, and they saw a space at the time. Uh, you know, Starbucks was the was really one of the only major, uh, you know, uh, coffee QSR concepts uh, uh, that was really making a name for themselves. So, you know, they made a decision to uh, take something a little bit, uh, take a look at uh, another alternative, uh, looking at. Uh, perhaps a, a, a more comforting uh, venue and environment that included fireplaces and leather furniture and just wanted to uh, take a departure from the uh, the Italian espresso, uh, uh, kind of the, the Italian espresso shop that Starbucks had, uh, you know, introduced at that time. So started out of Minneapolis and, uh, you know, we grew uh, to probably – uh, you know, 50 to 100 stores here in this particular area. Uh, I'll, Brett was probably, uh, you know, one of those foundational players, and I'll, I'll turn it over to him for a bit. Um, but we uh, we ended up growing our um, uh, this concept then in Georgia, Chicago, went into Ohio, if you recall, and uh, into the Carolinas, um, and. Uh, 
you know, continue to grow the brand and obviously, you know, develop the, the uh, supply chain around that. One of our first, uh, really the, the business venture that really got us on the map from a national standpoint was uh, securing the Delta Airlines account in 1998. Uh, obviously, oh, that was a big deal for a small brand that, uh, you know, we were obviously competing with Starbucks and some of the other, you know, I'll say more of the commercial players, the Folgers and Maxwell Houses. Uh, it's been a fun company. We're downtown, you know, we started in Minneapolis in the warehouse district. Cool, trendy loft offices. Uh, you know, that type of thing, uh, very casual. I had come from Nestle, uh, 17 years where it was, you know, coat and tie and button-down shirt. Uh, and, you know, it was a nice departure and, and really a fun and, and still is a fun place to work. Brett, why don't you uh, take a moment then on uh, what you recall and, uh, from the early days? Sure, sure. Um, Glenn, thanks for the great introduction. Really, really appreciate that. Um, mm -hmm. As Paul alluded to, uh, it's it's been a it's been a really fun ride uh, here at Caribou, uh, and 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 trust me, fun is at the center of our culture. Uh, it's it's not just what it looks like from the outside; it's truly uh, what it is from the inside, and and so it's been a very enjoyable uh, uh, you know workplace to be around, and uh, not just enjoyable, but also uh, you know. Not only do we have a lot of fun with our sustainability format, we, but we also take our sustainability uh, at Caribou very seriously. Um, as, as Paul kind of laid out there, uh, you know, that was really the not only the history of, of the growth of the company, um, in, including uh, kind of picking up where he left off. We uh, ventured into uh, stores uh, outside of the, the U.S. We, we uh, uh, made a serious play in the Middle East, um, and at this point in time, uh, we have a, a large store base uh, there, including uh, countries like uh, you know Kuwait and Dubai and, and Turkey, and, and even uh, have opened up uh, uh, the, the market in, in Jakarta in Indonesia recently. Um, the other thing that was pretty significant uh, over the the years has been you know kind of Caribou's approach to being a multi-channel coffee company, uh, as, as Paul mentioned, there was the, the Delta Airlines account, and that was kind of our first uh, foray into a channel that was outside of, of coffee retailing. Um, but part of our uh, approach was uh, not only moving out of the downtown Minneapolis uh, location, where we had a lot of limitations on uh, uh, manufacturing and distribution, but uh, in addition to uh, getting into a, a close ring suburb here, in Minneapolis, uh, it allowed us the capability to uh, get into channels that were uh, beyond the, the retailing uh, area of the business. So uh, things such as, as grocery and uh, food service and office, office coffee service, uh, if those of you are familiar with the Keurig uh, single cup format, uh, that was a, a big area of growth, uh, especially uh, five to seven years ago here. And uh, and so uh, it, it really put a lot of uh, you know a lot of strain and challenges on our supply chain, but it also uh, gave us a lot of breadth of uh, of market and a lot of ability to do more um, with our with our sourcing platform. So uh, in in you know in addition to not only 
opening up more channels, we had the uh, the ability then to uh, uh, source more pounds, and with more pounds comes um, a little bit more of a market presence uh, with our uh, with our, our coffee uh, origins, where we source coffee from, which uh, has been significant in terms of our influence. Um, so I think that kind of lays out the, the framework a little bit for not only the history of, of the brand, but also kind of the, the growth trajectory and, and where we've been as a company. Um, and uh, Glenn, again, thank you very much for this opportunity and look forward to uh, mm -hmm. uh, entertaining some questions, uh, not only from yourself, but from others who are on the call. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think what's interesting is you just uh, alluded to the fact that both you and Paul have uh, traveled the world to take a look at uh, where the coffee's coming from, and uh, and to make the uh, and and to make the contracts with those who are going to supply your coffee. Tell us a little bit about what it was like when you first went out there on the road and began to see some of, some of the places where coffee was being produced and. And then why don't you just go right into why Caribou Coffee decided to buy to only buy coffee from Rainforest Alliance certified coffee farms? Sure, sure. So um, that's that's a that's a great question from the standpoint that um, you know the, the coffee uh, industry and and source uh, countries from which we source have have gone through a, a tremendous amount of change. In the let's say the last 15 to 20 years that um, um, Paul and I have have been involved with this, um, you know I remember when when I first started visiting uh, uh, Central America, uh, it was it was a very different landscape. We uh, you know it was it was before cellular communication, it was before uh, the internet and uh, and and emails and, and things of that nature. And so uh, when you visited with producers. Um, in, in Central America in the early 2000s, late 1990s, um, it was it was very different in terms of the lack of transparency of information uh, that was kind of afforded to producers and uh, their ability to really discern and understand what was happening uh, in consuming countries such as the U.S., Europe, and Japan in particular. And I really think that a lot of the global changes that happened in that mid-2000s time period as far as uh, uh, communications technology, uh, the Internet are concerned, really uh, were kind of, a, you know, that, that whole idea that, that the world is flat um, really started uh, in that time period. And uh, one of the things that, that happened very quickly in combination with some other, um, some other shocks and events on, on supply and demand uh, was was a real depression in coffee prices for producers in um, in, in countries uh, that that uh, produce coffee, um, and so it was about in the early 2000s that really uh, certifications, uh, primarily in the way of uh, organic and fair trade, uh, became became uh, extremely popular, and there was a lot of public pressure. Uh, in the U.S. in particular on uh, concepts such as ourselves and, and Starbucks uh, to really uh, respond uh, to what was becoming very evident in, in producing countries that, uh, that, that basically depressed prices were having an adverse effect on producing of communities and their ability to produce quality coffee and, and in some instances even to survive and, and to be uh, sustainable. So, 
Um, with Caribou, what, what we did is, is we, uh, you know, being good stewards of the industry, we, we did, in fact, engage in, in both fair trade and in, in, uh, in organics, uh, you know, as we were trying to understand the landscape of kind of the, you know, the, the changing, uh, the, the, the changing uh, you know, winds of change that were coming uh, with respect to, uh, you know, the, the pricing situation. And it was actually then after a few years of dabbling with that that we realized um, that there was this other concept that was out there, which was the, the Rainforest Alliance certification. Um, and one of Caribou's attraction uh, to the Rainforest Alliance was that it was a holistic uh, sustainability uh, and sourcing platform and, and certification that addressed really all three pillars of, of sustainability um, in terms of economic, environmental, and social. Uh, if you think about uh, fair trade, it, it tends to primarily be uh, uh, concerned with prices, and with prices comes the, the social aspect of sustainability. Or if you think about organic, uh, organic tends to be more of the uh, more of the environmental consideration in terms of uh, inputs, whether it be fertilizers or uh, wastewater treatment and things of that nature. Um, and uh, what was unique about the Rainforest Alliance was that it, it addressed uh, multiple facets of, of sustainability, and uh, that's really the point in time that, uh, uh, that Paul and, and a couple of other people who were instrumental in making those decisions at that time decided that it was uh, it was it was not only a, a, a good uh, transition, but it was a great uh, certification uh, for us to to begin to embrace, um, which kind of led us to where we are today. Paul, you were involved in the decision at the time. Tell us a little bit about uh, about how that decision came about, and uh, and and some of the different people who may, were involved in making a decision to go to 100% Rainforest Alliance certification. Well, as Brent mentioned, he provided a good backdrop on, on mm -hmm. uh, you know, the aspects of, of rainforest. And one of the, um, as he mentioned, there were uh, rainforest wasn't necessarily the most popular at the time. It was also a growing organization. And one of the things that, that attracted us um, was the fact that the transfer of funds was direct to the farmer. It was included in and still is, uh, and why, why it is an attractive model is that it's truly transparent. We actually, our pricing for the certificate, you know, obviously uh, the farmers, they, they have to apply for certification, and, and there's a payment for that certification to the Rainforest Alliance. They recoup that in their, uh, in their contracts to the actual uh, business partners, and that's, that's what, I, uh, what attracted myself is, with some of the others, and I, with some of the other uh, certification models at the time, um, it was a uh, it was a payment into an organization. And just as, as some of you may know, sometimes you don't know if 20%, 10%, 99%, what is really getting into the hands of the farmers, and that uh, that bothered us a little bit, uh, and myself. And as Brent mentioned, that was. The other piece of that was we were a small company. Uh, we didn't have the, uh, you know, the Starbucks was, was really developing their own cafe practices. They had the wherewithal, you know, financial and the girth to do such a thing. 
Um, we were so small at the time, but we wanted to appeal to our customer base, that, as Brett had alluded to, that we wanted to cover all those aspects, the human rights, the, you know, sustainable, you know, uh, uh, the agronomy practices, uh, climatic practices. Uh, we wanted to get as much as we could uh, in a in a program that, that would have that that would permeate all those those aspects those pillars as Brett mentioned, so we looked at that. That seemed to be the best program, coupled with the fact that the that there was transparency in the transfer of funds, just made it attractive. Um, and I worked with our CEO in 2005, and we said let's let's do this thing. It's the right thing to do. Um, we, uh, as Brett mentioned, then from uh, for about another five years, we we were helping. We actually were working with Rainforest Alliance. Brett and his team actually would go into Origin. I went on a couple of those. Um, more than I always chose the the safer ones when there were hotels and stuff. Uh, but there there was a, uh, uh, a I'll give you an indication. We we had gone into Indonesia. And the Sumatran coffees uh, are a very, are very big part of our blends, of all of our coffee blends. Um, and we did not have a single farm. They did not have a presence, meaning Rainforest Alliance, a presence in that particular region. We actually went in with them in some of these regions to actually work with them, set up their, uh, uh, you know, their certification criteria, the verification criteria, the interviewing questions, you know, how to put the whole model together. Um, and uh, that was one particular trip you know, that I took to Indonesia. And as Brett said, you know, it was, uh, you had maybe a Blackberry, and if that worked, that was, it was spotty. I mean, you were in some areas that, uh, you know, you really cut off for, for days sometimes. And Brett and his team went into, I'll say some of the more challenging regions. I'm looking here. I wrote a couple down here, like the Tanzanians, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Rwanda. Um, I always usually passed on those uh, uh, those trips, but uh, I don't know, Brett, if you want to take a minute on those. Uh. <clears throat> um, sure. Uh, I, I think that uh, one of the things that's been an extremely uh, challenging aspect of our commitment has been that uh, there are some uh, sources around the world that not are only challenging from a travel uh, standpoint and accessibility, but uh, in addition to that, what, where they really present challenges is uh, where they are either not adopting the Rainforest Alliance certification or they're very early in their adoption of, of Rainforest Alliance and, and becoming certified sources. Um, so namely, uh, there's a couple where caribou has been focused in the, in the past few years, uh, and I'll just use Tanzania and Papua New Guinea as a couple of, of examples. Uh, in the instance of Tanzania, uh, one of our buyers and myself, we were able to visit a couple of years ago um, in order to visit the very first Rainforest Alliance certified source within Tanzania uh, in the southwest part of the country. Uh, this, this area was not... Uh, kind of the Kilimanjaro area states that uh, um, a lot of coffee comes from that's more kind of uh, Kenya-esque in, uh, in, in its flavor profile and also its accessibility. But this is a very uh, difficult uh, area uh, to access in a lot of respects. And, uh, you know, but, but obviously not only is it very re rewarding from 
from a, a certified standpoint when you get a supplier like that on board, but also uh, gaining access to qualities and to flavors that you would not otherwise be able to gain access to is, is just a, a great reward when you're able to partner not only with the Rainforest Alliance, but also with the producers who are uh, who are working with uh, Rainforest Alliance. So that was a fantastic experience. Uh, the other that's been extremely uh, difficult, and, and this has been on the flip side, has been Papua New Guinea. And the, the reason being is that uh, there are just not um, uh, a lot of uh, certified sources within Papua New Guinea. It's a, it's a fabulous producing origin. Um, in terms of the types of qualities of coffee that Papua New Guinea um, exports, they're very unique. Uh, they're, they're unlike um, other coffees in the world that you uh, would associate, let's say, with um, Central and South America. Uh, but because of some of the, the rigorous uh, requirements of the Rainforest Alliance, uh, there are producers that are within countries such as this that, that literally cannot work within the, the, the political and, and, uh, and, and other types of structures that are here uh, in these countries uh, to, to satisfy the, the Rainforest Alliance requirements. And so it puts, it puts caribou into a, a little bit of an ethical quandary from the standpoint of, you know, do you uh, move forward with commitments with producers have, who have uh, really good faith intentions of trying to make their sustainability practices better, uh, or do you uh, have the unfortunate conversation with certain sources and tell them that because they're not certified, uh, they don't meet caribou's requirements for um, for sourcing on an on an ethical and sustainability basis. Um, so we we definitely take those types of uh, circumstances on a case by case basis. We can't. We can't treat uh, every situation the same because they're just they're just not. Um, but it is one of the challenges of of engaging in this uh, of this kind of more open model for sustainability uh, practice with with RA is 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 that you do have to uh, have a lot of discernment about what you choose to do and what you don't choose to do. Well, that's so significant, Brett, that uh, that you raise those those uh, issues there I'm sure that there's often gray areas but working with the Rainforest Alliance and their certification standards um, I like the fact that you've talked about the holistic sustainability um, it's uh, it's certainly important that we reduce our ecological footprint in this world as we're as you know as we have businesses that are environmentally conscious and uh, and what you do with the fertilizer and how you handle wastewater in growing uh, coffee beans on a, on a coffee plantation are critically important, but the economic and social piece is critically important as well. Can you talk about some of the improvements that have been made for the lives of farmers around the world because of your commitment to the Rainforest Alliance certification standards? Sure. Uh, I think that one of the things that we really appreciate uh, about our partnership with the Rainforest Alliance is that they don't treat the uh, the contextual environment within every country is is different, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, uh, basically the the, uh, the the conditions, whether they be uh, environmental or political or social, within let's say a country like Costa Rica, 
is going to be really drastically different than it would be uh, within a country, let's say, uh, such as Indonesia. And, and frankly, within Indonesia, um, you know, Java is, is very disparately different from uh, Sumatra, for instance. So one of the things that, that the Rainforest Alliance does is they understand that these contexts are different, uh, the cultures are different, uh, basically the uh, you know the the way that let's say utilization of of children or that are within a family uh, to uh, work whether uh, whether it be on a farm or otherwise uh, is different cultural context depending on on where you are in the world and so what they do is they they take uh, they take good good kind of practices and norms um, from let's say uh, what we would consider to be reasonable in a country such as the United States, and then they say, okay, with that, and understanding the culture uh, within, let's say, a country like Honduras, how do we balance uh, what's acceptable um, from from uh, from our perspective with what is uh, not just acceptable but necessary, let's say, from their perspective, and and really strike um, what would be a, kind of a harmonious. Uh, a balance between those two things because in, in a lot of instances things that we think that wouldn't be acceptable um, for us uh, are in fact uh, completely uh, necessary for livelihoods within within a, a producing country um, and and I guess to kind of address the second part of your question one of the things uh, that's been uh, where we've been most active has been within the country of Guatemala uh, Guatemala is a country that uh, has been a, a long uh, time uh, kind of a mainstay source for caribou coffee uh, because of its high quality, because of its uh, kind of acidic and lemony profile in the northwestern part of the country in particular. And uh, one of the things that caribou did was that we engaged in a uh, kind of a three-party relationship between uh, caribou, uh, our uh, our importer and exporter uh, partners, and and then also um, uh, the community farms in the area of Huehuetenango, in order to install a medical clinic um, in that area where there was was a uh, a real need for better and and closer uh, uh, in proximity medical care than what was being uh, offered to that community previously, and. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily uh, directly attributable to the Rainforest Alliance um, commitment, but one thing of note is that when, when you have uh, these different entities uh, between roaster, uh, trader, and, and producer, and they're all participating in the same uh, system, it creates a common framework for everyone to have discussions around what are uh, not just common practices, but also what are the areas of need for a community that uh, can improve their livelihoods. Um, you know, they have stayed committed to the Rainforest Alliance uh, certification uh, for a long-term commitment, which makes them qualified uh, to supply coffee into Caribou Coffee. Um, and so it's really that, that uh, unifying framework across the certification that we've, all, uh, that we've all made our commitment to that allows for these other types of projects um, to to really uh, be possible um, because once you once you agree to a framework, then everybody realizes that you're in a long-term partnership that will um, not just be 
you know, for this harvest season or the next harvest season, but, but really for uh, decades to come. Thanks, Brad. Boy, very comprehensive answer that uh, indicates the kind of complexity that you all are dealing with as you deal with different uh, cultures around the world uh, who are producing the beans that you guys are uh, roasting and, and uh, then producing such great coffee uh, through your shops. Um, at this time, I'm going to be uh, turning uh, the call from my interview over to uh, the questions that some of our callers might have. But just before we do, uh, Paul, could you give us uh, a website or some contact information if anyone wants to follow up on what they've heard on today's call? Let's see. Um, just our email address, right? Okay. Um, Glenn, why don't they just access – you have both uh, Brett's and, and my email address. Simply, that'll be fine. We've done that in the past. We'll, we'll simply use our, our, our uh, company email address. Be glad to do that. Okay. So I'll tell you what. Uh, if, if you have uh, questions that go beyond today's call, folks, you can email me, glenn at goodcities.net, and I'll be happy to connect you to either Paul or Brett uh, with a, uh, by uh, giving you their email address from there. So email me at glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at goodcities.net, and we'll, uh, we'll get folks in touch with you. Caribou Coffee also has a website. What's the website? Uh, it, it's simply, uh, you can pick it up and simply Google it, and it'll come up, and it'll have uh, everything from e-commerce to our other corporate, you know, outside of coffee, some of the other activities that, uh, that we're involved with here in our local communities. Uh, what we're doing, obviously, the Super Bowl is here in Minneapolis. We've got, a, uh, you know, we've got several tabs devoted to that. Whether we make it there as a team or not, who knows? But... Uh, there are uh, our products. Uh, we obviously are part of a, a larger organization now that includes uh, Bagel Concepts, uh, the uh, Einstein Brothers, and also Brugers. So uh, that would be my recommendation, Glenn. Simply, uh, you know, go to the broader site, and, and there's plenty of information and, and links to particular categories that someone might be of interest. So take a look. One of the things that I've been impressed with about Caribou Coffee is they have a Do Good Corporate Charter. That's called Do Good Corporate Charter. If you look up uh, Do Good, once you, once you get to their website in their search box there, you'll, you'll come up with a report on some of the good things that, that they're doing in communities in addition to the Rainforest Alliance. At this time, we're going to open up our call to uh, others who are on the call and give them a chance to ask questions as well. If you've muted your line, now is the time to unmute your line and then give us your name and where you're from and then ask your question. This is Mary Kay, and uh, uh, congratulations on uh, steering the path of a company to do good. I mean, it's not easy. I know that firsthand. And I guess my question is specifically around how did you do that, profit versus uh, doing good? Was there ever a conversation among leadership of uh, pushback on this agenda, profitability versus doing good? Or was it a core value that it didn't matter if profit suffered as a consequence of pursuing this path? Yeah, yeah well, well, Brett and I 
question. Uh, there's there's different stakeholders representing different aspects of the business. No, it wasn't a. Uh, it certainly wasn't a. Uh, you know, the gates, the toll gates weren't wide open, and there was all, always discussion. Uh, not so much from the standpoint of intent and the ultimate, you know, the ultimate goal of, of impacting our our communities positively, but you know, making sure, uh, especially under our different uh, the different ownership structures that we've been, uh, there were a number of filters and a number of conversations that you know, obviously we had to we had to navigate through. And I guess where where I'm going is we were first a proprietary company. Uh, there was a, a small uh, handful of venture capital uh, folks here in the Twin Cities that basically funded the, the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we transitioned to a private equity group. We went public, and now we're back to a you know a privately held uh, organization. So, you know, again, as uh, ownership uh, as the ownership changes, they all have stakes. Uh, they own the company, and we have to. Uh, good news is we've always. Uh, We've seemed to uh, attract the ownership that is certainly is supportive. Uh, there's always questions on what's the best way to support, and obviously they own the company. They they want to ask more questions, and and they have that right to do so. So, it was some, uh, um, you know, more so in the early days before Rainforest was really uh, uh, really gathered their, you know, their momentum in in this particular space. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is Brett. I, I think the one thing that I would add is that, you know, it's been to Caribou's benefit that the Rainforest Alliance seal uh, commands um, some some attention in the marketplace, and and it's one of those things that, um, you know, you, you 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 can't necessarily overlook the fact that. Ultimately, you are interested in getting a return uh, to your to your commitments and and your uh, you know your your ethical approach from the standpoint that you would like anything else. You know, I think any of these decisions, you know, whether you uh, you know whether you decide to go uh, higher on a quality scale uh, than a competitor or whether you choose to um, you know. Even some of the things that are more intangible, like Paul was referring to in the introduction about comfortable seating and fireplaces and, and things of that nature, you know, every investment that Caribou makes uh, is one that has to be taken holistically in terms of what is the return uh, to the brand and, and whether or not it contributes value or not. Um, and I think the reason that the Rainforest Alliance commitment has had as much staying power as it has. Uh, now for uh, more than 10 years uh, and, and more than, uh, let's say, seven years on a 100% basis is because it, it does contribute it does contribute value. It's become um, an integral part of, of Caribou's identity is the understanding that um, we have uh, this, this ethical commitment to sustainability and sourcing of coffee. And uh, so, so with that, um, it, it makes it an easier decision to make when, uh, when, when you understand that you're getting that, uh, that recognition in the marketplace from consumers who, who care about, uh, 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 you know, your ethical sourcing practices in coffee. Uh, this is Alan Ross, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, 
Caribou used to be in my neighborhood, and I loved sitting by the fireplace. Unfortunately, it's gone. So the fireplace is gone. Uh, the question is, there's, there's always a cost associated with um, what you're doing. So you're asking me and others as a consumer to pay that cost. Have you found um, any sort of percentage differential where, where there comes a point where we say, you know, that, that cup of coffee or that bagel is now too expensive um, based on, on what your passion is. That might not be my passion. And how do you connect me to that? I, you know, I don't go to your website. I've looked at it right now, and I see in one of your do-good programs, your externship program, and I see all these kids with smiling faces. Well, I'd pay twice the amount of, uh, for a cup of coffee to know that I'm impacting these kids. So how do you adjust for cost uh, to make sure I'll pay for it, and how do you communicate it well to your, your customer base? Well, um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think uh, one is uh, maintaining our, our uh, uh, you know, our, the messaging on our websites. Uh, also, within our stores, a lot of our point of sale, our mobile applications that uh, we keep folks focused on, uh, uh, you know, on uh, what's going on, what deals we have, and what, uh, you know, what new products, and what's behind some of the new products, especially, you know, Brett's group, where we'll be, we'll be featuring a lot of single origins now, uh, and, um, for instance, uh, our, our decaf coffee is 100% naturally processed. We're the only ones that can guarantee that in our space, in our beverage space, and I, I say the only ones uh, of our size. Uh, that it, we were really the first to, to come out with a natural decaf as well for the same reason. And I think it's a value proposition. It always is. And people have, we realize people have choices. Uh, my daughter in New York can go to Blue Bottle and buy a 16-ounce cup of coffee for $11. Uh, they are, uh, to answer your question, people have choices, and, and you try to put the best product out there you can. But you, you want to optimize the best combination of product quality, um, what you stand for, you know, as a company and environment, and of course the service platform. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be fast enough if people want, you know, want that that quick service, and also you have to provide a, an environment that they want to enjoy that, enjoy your products, and uh, you know, as you said, in in uh, in a way. <laughs> In Atlanta, by the way, we'll we'll make another push there in the Atlanta area. We'll get your fireplace back. But again, it's all about you. You put what you can out there, and you don't try to overplay. Uh, at least that's been our uh, it's been our secret to success. Um, don't overplay your hand. Uh, you, you know what you have, and and be proud of what you have. And people can make a choice. They can. We haven't grown from 100 stores to, you know, over. 700, this is just Caribou, close to 800 stores, uh, people have made their choices. Uh, we're fine with that. Do we want to be uh, 10,000 unit uh, like some of our competitors? That's really not, that's not our space. That's for, that's for that group, and there's, there's a customer base, obviously, that supports that. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but uh, that's kind of that's our approach to, uh, you know, to that type of uh, uh, initiative. You mentioned your customer base. Do you think your customer base uh, is that group of millennials who will pay a premium 
for companies that do good, um, and that's your target. Is that what makes this work for you? You know, they are. What we like to do is, is, is that is one targeted, uh, uh, you know, segment of our of our customer base. And I have to say, segment. We try to. What we want to do is appeal to all. When we go, uh, as we're gearing towards them, and the, the millennials, yes, we want to utilize the mobile application, drinks, um, and obviously some of the social responsibility aspects. But we don't do it because of that. We do it because that's something. Uh, I think it was the uh, Glenn. You may have mentioned it. The, the word core values came out earlier, and is it is one of our core values. How it manifests itself in the different uh, customer segments, be it the millennials, the, the wise disease and whatever, the, uh, and now for myself, the, uh, the golden ages. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> well, I heard you laugh, Glenn. Uh, we have a little something for, uh, you know, we want to appeal to each one of those, uh, but at the same time maintain our identity, because otherwise you, you begin to send the confusing mes- messages to that to our broader customer base. Uh, yes, my name is Dean Price. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina. I see where you all have partnered with Korg, uh, and there's been some uh, discussion about their K-Cups not being environmentally friendly. And I was wondering if how you all um, uh, play that out in your marketing, and is there a conflict there with what you're doing overall? Uh, hey, that's a great question. Uh, you know, what I'll say about Keurig and the relationship that Keurig has with Keurig uh, is that, you know, it, it, this goes back um, uh, probably close to 15 years. Uh, Caribou was one of the first uh, uh, significant partners of the Keurig system uh, back before, uh, you know, back before Starbucks had opted in, back before uh, Pete's and, and some others had opted in. And uh, really, one of the ways that Keurig uh, went to market was that it was uh, looking for um, kind of a, a niche of, you know, which really exploded during the economic crisis, and it was around this this idea of frugality that uh, people couldn't necessarily uh, find that they could afford to go out for a cup of coffee uh, at this point in time. Uh, there was obviously a lot of strain on the economy. And uh, and what what Keurig positioned itself as was a company that uh, in a system uh, that could attract uh, people into the category by offering uh, what was uh, you know basically cafe style coffee with uh, cafe brands that could be uh, bought by the cup uh, and brewed at home and uh, by the way you didn't have to. Um, uh, you know, brew an entire pot of coffee in order to enjoy a single cup of coffee. And so it was really that that frugality um, time period that, that the Keurig system really grew in popularity. Um, but this, the challenge that they had had at that time, which continues on to now, is that challenge of, of packaging uh, that you mentioned. And Keurig has, has long uh, been working on solutions around whether or not they could go to whether it be a recyclable cup, whether it be a compostable cup, uh, looking at different uh, content uh, for their packaging. And, um, you know, one thing that I will I will definitely, uh, uh, you know, uh, identify with as far as they're concerned is that 
they haven't found a solution uh, at this point in time, although uh, through our partnership with them, we, we understand that they are continuing to work on a solution. Um, the, the one thing that I uh, tell, tell consumers when we're talking about this issue, though, is that uh, Keurig is not the only uh, the, not the only product has the challenge of of addressing with their stakeholders that they have packaging, right? Uh, you know, you, you see this as a proliferation uh, throughout, uh, whether it be Walmart or Target or um, even uh, you know, look at a uh, looking at to-go containers uh, within QSR formats, things of that nature. Um, we all have this this challenge of dealing with, with uh, packaging and, and post-consumer uh, waste. And so it, they've, they've attracted a lot of unfavorable attention on this issue. Um, and, and I think in some respects it's been, it's been unfair because, uh, you know, all you have to do is walk through a grocery aisle. And if, if you only notice the K-cups and you don't notice everything else that's on shelf, um, then, then really we're missing the point in terms of, um, you know, what we all are up against as far as this issue is concerned. Um, I was just listening to a show uh, earlier this week about how China now is shutting down uh, exports of recyclables out of the U.S. back to China for reprocessing into raw materials. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that's not going to go away for, obviously, for any of us. So um, I don't mean to dodge the question in terms of reframing it. Um, we, we certainly acknowledge that... Uh, uh, single cup formats uh, present their own unique cha uh, challenges, but at the same point in time, uh, I think we're we're all opposed with uh, with that as far as how do we get uh, better in terms of uh, in, in terms of addressing packaging uh, as 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 an issue. One thing that I might bring up, Dean, uh, in response to is uh, this call is called "Businesses Doing Good, Not Businesses Doing Perfect." Um, I, I would like you know. I like the fact that uh, the general direction of Caribou Coffee is toward uh, being friendly to the environment and friendly to families that are raising the the, uh, the coffee beans that you all are using, and uh, and that's really the focus of our call today. I think I think you've raised an interesting point, and uh, and it sounds to me like it is part of the conscience of the uh, of the top leaders at Caribou Coffee that they'd like to figure out some way to uh, help, uh, you know, find better disposal for uh, the K-cups that uh, that are used in the Keurig process. I'd like to turn it over at this point to uh, Luke Bobo. Luke, I heard you uh, chime in saying you'd like to ask a call, ask a question. Uh, please go right ahead. Yeah, two simple, yeah, two simple questions. Uh, number one, where did the name Caribou come from? And two, has anything been written about your company? Right. You can go with the uh, Well, so so as Paul mentioned in the introduction, we were founded uh, by a, um, a married couple who had uh, uh, come out of, uh, of Dartmouth Business School, and they were both working in in corporate jobs in the East Coast, and had really kind of grown tired of uh, of the environment that they were in, and they were looking for something uh, that was more inspirational. Uh, something that they they really felt was going to uh, you know serve them uh, long term in their lives and you know it, it just so happened that they took a, tri a trip to Alaska uh, as they were trying to uh, you know think about this together about how they wanted to um, you know do something different and 
you know, it, it, it was in that Alaska trip. They were at the Arctic Wildlife, Arctic Wildlife Refuge um, in northern Alaska, and uh, they saw a herd of caribou um, that were kind of, uh, you know, stampeding there across the, the tundra. And it just, you know, I think the, the combination of that, uh, that, that trip and, and, and the caribou and the alliteration of caribou and caribou coffee uh, just kind of stuck, and uh, uh, they were both uh, they were both uh, huge coffee fanatics of a concept that was uh, was out in Boston called the Coffee Connection, um, and they realized that there was kind of an unserviced uh, uh, you know uh, market underserviced market here in Minnesota where uh, where Kim uh, had grown up, and so she. Uh, she convinced John to come back with her here to the Midwest, and uh, uh, you know that combination of that trip with that uh, uh, that enjoyment for coffee—it just kind of all came together. And the second question was, thanks, Brett. Was uh, information on caribou? I just I, I just googled our uh, our homepage, and there's several sections. There's explore. Uh, which will give you, you know, our perks and uh, about our, the coffee locations and more from that aspect. Then about the company, our, you know, our, our foundational information, media relations, our contacts. Uh, there's there's also some some business servicing uh, links as well. Uh, is there anything in particular on information that that Brett and I could help or redirect you to? Yeah, I was curious if if your company has been written up in any magazines uh, of that nature, any books have been written that feature your your company and your practices. Um, several magazines, uh, uh, and I'll say several times a year. A lot of it is the uh, the, uh, the trade magazines, you know, uh, which are specific to the QSR form, meaning we fall in there with. Uh, you know the likes of uh, Chipotle and the Yum Brands Group. Uh, you know, uh, from a beverage standpoint, the Jamba Juices, of course, Starbucks, and and uh, uh, and there's the periodicals that we, you know, that will uh, will appear. I know earlier we've appeared on. You know, there's there's been some segments on on television and things in our early years. I think, in particularly when we were, in particular when we were pursuing, uh, you know, our public IPO. Uh, back in the day, but uh, um, yeah, we you know we'll appear in the uh, uh, the trades on online as well, uh, the web pages and and, and uh, you know any industry communication. We're there. You can do a search on us and uh, uh, take a look. We have about five minutes left in our call, and uh, before we have uh, someone ask one more question, and I, and we will have one more question coming up. I just want to remind everyone that uh, Business is Doing Good is a call that comes together the third Thursday of every month. And on February the 15th, we'll be having Ron Hogue as our guest. Ron works with Crystal Clear Concepts and Golf Strategies. And uh, and Ron will be talking about creating a beyond-profit culture. And uh, he's got some really interesting insights. I know you'll enjoy it. So that's next month at 10 o'clock on February the 15th, the third Thursday of the month. So uh, who has a, uh, a final question for us today? Give us your name and where you're from. Hi, it's, Hi, this it's is Bill Vogelkasson. Um, so I want to pick up on, on something Glenn said, which I thought was very appropriate about companies doing good, not necessarily being 
perfect, and I applaud Caribou and, and the others who are trying to improve the lives of, of those in your supply chain and, and, uh, and, the, and the impact that you're making um, in the world. But I, um, I lost an argument with my 29-year-old son over the holidays, um, and I'm, so I'm looking for a little better ammunition. Um, he was chastising me for my selection of coffee because it wasn't organic, and that set me on a little research, and I found that less than 2% of the coffee produced in the world is organic, um, and, but that didn't seem to impact. Um, I didn't win the argument, let's put it that way, but you know, I'm curious. I know this is a, you don't control the uh, uh, growing practices um, and you are, and I'm, I, this is not a criticism, but I'm just kind of wondering how you think about that. Is there sort of an evolution that you see coming towards organic production, et cetera? Great, we both, yeah. That's, I, so so uh, in, in the spirit of, of uh, being able to win arguments with your children, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to help you out here. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I would say one of the more um, interesting things about being uh, engaged with the Rainforest Alliance certification is it, it does have the, uh, it does allow for producers to use uh, various uh, inputs, whether they be uh, fertilizers or uh, herbicides, pesticides, things of that nature that wouldn't necessarily be allowable by, uh, by an organic uh, producer. And the, and the reason that we feel that that's important is, is for, for, this, uh, for this reason, um, primarily right now, and if, if you do a little bit of research on this, you'll find um, that uh, something called coffee leaf rust uh, within uh, Central and South America is called La Roya. Uh, this is a, 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 a fungus that has uh, really inflicted um, a, a lot of coffee producing countries uh, around the world, but in particular, there was a huge coffee leaf rust uh, infestation uh, in, uh, in, in Colombia. Uh, it, it basically took almost 40% of Colombian coffee out of production, um, let's say seven years ago or so. And, uh, and so in, in, in the United States, for instance, uh, leaf rust is something that uh, can afflict, um, uh, you know, something like wheat, for instance. But, um, you know, uh, decades ago, uh, we engaged in, uh, you know, using different varieties and using combinations with different fungicides and basically uh, pretty much have been able to eradicate rust as a problem uh, with, with wheat uh, here in the U.S. And unfortunately, uh, coffee is, is many uh, years behind the U.S. in terms of uh, it's, it's, uh, it's agronomy practices and using different uh, varieties and, and things of that nature. Um, but uh, because of uh, the support from the Colombian government, they have a very uh, highly technified uh, support network in Colombia. Not only have they been able to find some varieties that are more rust resistant, um, but also um, you have, uh, you have a, a, the ability then for those producers who do practice uh, sustainable uh, agricultural uh, uh, practices such as the Rainforest Alliance, they can also use in combination herbicides that are approved 
uh, by the Rainforest Alliance. And the reason that that's important is, is this, because, uh, and I visited uh, El Salvador and a couple of other Central American countries uh, about five years ago where uh, literally producers lost the entirety of their, of their, whole, uh, their whole farm. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, unfortunate thing to see when you have uh, basically bare trees without any leaves. Uh, effectively, you have, um, you know, people have lost 70, 90 percent of their crop and their trees, and the entire, um, the entire farm has to be dug up and replanted. And if, if prices are not favorable, that, that will not happen. That, that farm will just simply um, cease to exist. So, um, as much as, as much as, uh, you know, organic is a movement that I think it has a lot of important uh, aspects to it. In terms of coffee, it's, it's, it's important to um, also recognize that you, you need to give producers the full breadth of the ability uh, to, to, to be sustainable and to thrive. And uh, if, they, if they literally, if, if, if they can't grow what it is that they have, then sustainability is, is really a, a mood issue at that point in time. Well, it's, it, we're coming to the end of our call here, and I want to thank Brett Struy and Paul Turek for their uh, participation in today's call. And uh, we're very thankful for the uh, wisdom and insight that you've shared about coffee production worldwide and uh, how you're sourcing coffee for Caribou Coffee by using 100% Rainforest Alliance certification. And I want to thank all of you who've called in today to participate as well. I hope you've gotten what you were hoping to hear out of today's call. If not, please follow up with me by email, and I'll connect you to either Brett or Paul. And, uh, again, my email address is glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at goodcities.net. And I'll look forward to hearing from you and interacting with you. Have a great day, folks. This has been a very good call.